what's so interesting about concrete is that is it's we, we are led to think that it's a uniquely modern material when you know we know it's not the romans had cement and uh there was cement in the united states uh at the very you know early decades of of the country's founding From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. I'm Ben Spohn. And I'm Amaris Williams. Each episode, we sit down with one of our visiting researchers and talk to them about what they're finding in our collections. My name is Vita Basilis, and I'm a PhD student in American Studies at the George Washington University. Uh, my project is tentatively titled uh, King Concrete, uh, A Cultural History of a Material, and it deals with uh, the history of cement and concrete in the United States and sort of Americans' obsession with this medium. Um, so specifically, I'm asking uh, why have we always got, gone back to working with cement instead of innovating other materials that might be more sustainable or more um, environmentally friendly. Uh, but it seems like whenever we're constructing roads or buildings and even coffins, we go back to concrete. And, um, you know, most recently there's there's been uh, this NASA competition for building in outer space and concrete is the material of choice. And I think it's really interesting why we always go back to it. So while, while concrete is also a great material for construction, there's, I think, also a cultural undercurrent that's driving a lot of these decisions. So the project is kind of very interdisciplinary and brings together um, architectural, cultural, technological, industrial histories uh, into the mix. Fantastic. And so it's not, you know, I, I, I'm sort of drawn to this question that you've raised about, you know, sort of answering this why, con- why concrete. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like, you know, that sort of flexibility is one of the answers. Um, I was wondering what some yeah. of the other kind of answers you have at this point yeah. as to sort of why concrete becomes the material that it, the, the, the versatile and um, yeah pre- ubiquitous material mm-hmm. that it does become. Yeah, so uh, one of the ways that the Portland Cement Association and a lot of companies advertised concrete was with the slogan, Concrete for Permanence. And so the perception was that, you know, this was the permanent material that you could not destroy. You didn't have to clean it. You didn't have to maintain it. It it was just the perfect solution to all the world's problems, you know. And um, one of uh, the materials I found in your collection, I was really hoping to find. I didn't know that it existed, but I thought it might because just, you know, everything seems to be to have been made of concrete at some point in time. And I thought this might be one of one of them. And so I finally found um, a booklet that described um, or sort of urged people to purchase concrete coffins. Uh, So, you know, unlike the wooden box that would just um, deteriorate over time and expose your beloved relatives to vermins and, you know, just the ugliness of of decay, um, the concrete box like makes you sort of permanent, you know, and it wasn't a concrete box, it was a concrete vault. So it's like, are you protecting your relatives in a vault or are you putting them in a wooden box, you know? So, but I think for me, this kind of really captures the sentiment that, you know, you 
use concrete if you care for something, if you want to save it, if you want to preserve it, and then all the other materials um, are inferior for that purpose. And so I think, you know, I definitely want to think more about like how concrete has changed our expectations for buildings and, and our expectations for living spaces in terms of our need for them to be permanent and sort of long lasting when, you know, the market doesn't necessarily dictate that at all. Sounds mm-hmm. like one of yeah. the things that you're trying to think about or what are the meanings of concrete mm-hmm. um, as sort of a part of that answer mm-hmm. to that question, why we return to concrete for all of these different applications. What have you been finding so far? What are some mm-hmm. of your ideas about what might be going on there? Uh, you know, I think there's, um, so my, my dissertation will be uh, divided up into different chapters that deal with issues like the body and um, ideas about labor and gender. And so the John McShane collection here was very helpful for that because um, while there's some research done on concrete, it usually involves the design aspect and specifically, you know, some of the major architects that have worked with concrete and sort of its aesthetic appeal. Um, and, you know, most usually the, the popular distaste for concrete, but there's this whole industry of concrete laborers and producers and companies and businesses that are usually not addressed in books on uh, architectural history. And so this collection really offers an insight into a realm of, um, you know, building history and, and history of the built environment um, that is commonly left out. So John McShane was a major contractor in the United States and uh, at the height of the success of the company in the 40s and 50s, he was ranked as the top four general building contractor in the entire country, which was a major achievement, uh, especially since he wasn't actually located in in New York City, which received a lot of these contracts. So his offices were in Washington, Baltimore, Trenton, and Philadelphia. And he was most well known for his work in Washington, constructing some of the major monuments and federal buildings, uh, like the Thomas Jefferson Memorial, the Pentagon uh, and the Department of Housing and Urban Development, which is my favorite. <laughs> uh, but I think Washington, you know, served as kind of a laboratory for a lot of experiments uh, with concrete construction. Washington is obviously the capital, the the best place to influence politics. Um, so there's uh, things like the concrete census, and you know, there's all of this lobbying happening in Washington, and so it's you know, a very great opportunity for companies to exhibit their products and new ideas about construction. And so McShane was definitely at the forefront of of a lot of these construction experiments. But I'm wondering if you could do a couple of things. One, just talk about the, describe a little bit about what's in the McShane collection Mm -hmm. that you've been looking at, and then maybe share a few examples of some of the sources that you found that you've just gotten really excited about. Yeah, so the McShane collection is massive. It's uh, there's boxes and boxes and boxes. Um, some of the materials are correspondences between his clients and McShane, between the different offices. Some of them are reports for for things happening on site. Uh, there's things like Christmas cards and um, blueprints for buildings, which was really interesting to see. Um, I think for me, it was really interesting to learn about how McShane um, strategically chose certain projects. So, you know, some of the projects were huge financial gains and others were losses or he was just barely breaking even. And those were not 
entirely unpredictable for him. So there was kind of like a a very intentional way that he chose certain projects um, to increase the sort of the cultural capital of his company and then to position position himself politically in a very intentional way. So, for example, he uh, built the uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt Library, uh, which was uh, a big expenditure. And he, I think, barely broke even on that one. But then, you know, the relationship he developed with the president got him the Pentagon project, which was the biggest construction project of the time. So um, I did not anticipate such thought put into kind of the, the, you know, the forward thinking way that this company operated in terms of the projects he selected. And I think at one point he was even called uh, Roosevelt's right hand man because so many projects went to McShane. Um, and I think there, there's like an estimate where at one point um, he was receiving more government projects than, than two of his closest competitors combined. So, um, and you know, so that was really interesting to gather from the documents, seeing the different exchanges and sort of him complaining to like his secretary or his business partner about um, how this is not really financially smart, but you know, always kind of thinking forward you know, concrete is, is not, it's a genuinely good material for a lot of construction. I think it's just curious how it infiltrated all types of different construction. Um, uh, so, you know, I think um, I'm trying to look at um, the industry from the point of view of the manufacturers of concrete, but also the users of the material and um, sort of the stake that architects had as well in this process. Um, it was also a cheap material to use in contrast to uh, other options. And so the McShane collection documents some of the labor costs involved in the construction of buildings. And so different laborers received different salaries and um, concrete construction did not require skilled labor. So the cost for these workers was um, half, if not less, of the typical brick layers or carpenters. So that's a big um, push. And I think concrete construction also presented opportunities for uh, more and more descalement of laborers because um, there are ways to mechanize the process in a way where you can train workers on site and you don't really need um, apprenticeships and sort of, um, yeah, experiences that otherwise would be necessary. Mm, that's fascinating. You know, there's kind of a history of capitalism and a history of industry and business that, um, you know, go beyond the aesthetics and really shed light on how concrete is a much more complicated medium that's not necessarily used for aesthetics, but there's a lot of other uh, elements involved. Um, so, you know, brutalism obviously is going to be important to talk about. Um, but again, I think those conversations oftentimes really just kind of stay in the realm of design. And I'd really like to think more about like, where does this material come from? Okay, we built with concrete, but where did it come from? Who got the contract? Who paid for it? Um, and, you know, like, um, and, it, you know, the assumption is that concrete is always cheaper, but that's not true. Concrete actually became quite expensive to use in, in the 60s and 70s and later on. So there's a, a conscious choice about um, using it for other reasons in terms of thinking about how does this concrete building represent my company as particularly progressive or modern or um, 
um, American even. One of the strengths of your project is that it connects up all of these places that are otherwise, you know, sort of disparate. So mm -hmm. can you say a little more about what are the different yeah. places and materials that that a history of concrete helps us see the connections among? Yeah, I mean, the way I see this project is, is so much more about kind of networks and, and these, um, uh, you know, movement patterns. And so um, before the U.S. Uh, sort of put together their own cement industry, cement was imported from Europe, uh, from Germany and the U.K. And, um, you know, as the American economy became stronger and more independent, they decided that it would just be more uh, reasonable to produce their own cement. And the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania was kind of the, the site for that production. And at one point in the early 1900s, they were producing 75% of the entire country's cement. Um, and so for me, the way these locations were selected and the way they were thought about at the time is really interesting. So. Um, collecting a whole bunch of maps that document uh, new um, cement factories and sort of new quarries and how people envisioned and sort of connected them with railways and 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 state lines and how people reimagined uh, sort of the geographical area in the context of the cement industry and in that particular business. Um, but you know at the cement industry kind of moved westward with the expansion uh, into the west and, and sort of followed construction patterns and, and delivered where there was a need. Um, so, but you know, at also that really um, dwindled in the, in the 60s where cement production in the US became really expensive because of environmental regulations and, and concerns for labor. Uh, and so currently, actually, U.S. doesn't produce much cement at all. And a lot of our cement is imported from, uh, again, Europe and Latin America and Canada, actually, too. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of it as kind of a global process and not just strictly restricted to the United States. So I'm interested in the U.S. production and sort of the networks that were developed. And, you know, multiple companies would have different plants all across the country. And so one of my projects looked at um, the Lone Star Cement Company, which had a branch in Washington and supplied a lot of cement to the construction of the federal buildings. But their major cement plant was actually in Virginia, two hours away. And so they used the water network to bring the, the raw material and then they would use the local plant to distribute it to the different projects. So I think, you know, the way these networks worked, I think is really interesting. Um, but then, you know, the way this process worked on a global level, I think is really fantastic too. And so now, you know, China produces so much of our cement and they ship it to Africa and Latin America. And so I think it's, you know, really interesting to think about where cement comes from and, and how we never think of it as being geographically specific, but actually it is. And um, I, I visited the, um, Atlas Cement Company Memorial Museum in um, Northampton, I think in Pennsylvania, right at the Lehigh Valley. And there is this one quote um, from a woman who worked, uh, yeah, I think it was a woman, who, who worked at the cement plant. And she, um, they produced the cement for the Panama Canal. And so when Panama Canal uh, was given up, she felt like part of her town was given up too. So, 
just thinking about like how people associate meaning or or ownership of structures that may not even be in their periphery um, just because they produce the material for it, I think is really interesting and it challenges our ideas about um, property and location and, and these types of connections. What's so interesting with concrete too is that it's such a mundane material. People don't think that there's a culture and a history associated with concrete when actually um, concrete connects to so many of our desires and ideas about ourselves and our um, sort of Western lifestyle. And uh, concrete has always fulfilled like a, this curious civilizing mission of sort of going into um, different markets to modernize populations. And so uh, not related to the McShane collection, but uh, you, you guys have a lot of uh, materials on concrete on the farm which is really fun. Um, and that's kind of really interesting to think about the, the farmer as kind of the ideal consumer of concrete because he has his own labor and he has a lot of the other materials besides Portland cement. So he has you know the sand and the water and he can just do things at his own pace. And so it's kind of this ideal market. Um, and you know the way the concrete industry marketed, marketed to that sector uh, is really interesting in the way they used kind of scientific language to communicate about or like there's one example where they um, suggested that uh, farmers should use concrete to pr uh, preserve dying trees by filling sort of cleaning the cavities and filling them with con concrete and they compare that to dentistry and how you get your teeth fixed and you know dentists use these tools to get rid of the cavity and put in a filling. And so I think the ideas about concrete and hygiene at that time in history are really closely related. And I think when we think of concrete, we don't make those associations or even think that that's you know, a possibility. Yeah, well, my own research is on agriculture, so I'm familiar mm, with some of these okay, yeah, things on, yeah. you know, certainly, you know, yeah. what I've encountered in that, um, in, in terms of concrete on the farm is really in like, you know, barns and dairy mm -hmm. pens and other things like that, yeah. you know, as the sanitary mm -hmm. measure to replace like a dirt floor, mm -hmm. something that you can hose down, mm -hmm. you know, and then have a drain in the bottom mm -hmm. so that you're, you know, yeah. mucking out the pens or <clears throat> whatever would be more sanitary if you yeah. had this, you know, this surface, more modern surface as opposed to dirt and wood. Yeah, I really uh, want to think more about like how, um, you know, their thinking about like hogs and other animals was sort of um, reflective of people's thinking about themselves at the time and sort of how, like what role concrete plays in, in thinking about like how your farmhouse should look and how like your animals how should look and you know there's a connection between those two and just thinking about kind of like capitalist history too like this the concrete is the perfect material because you know yeah you're divor divorcing the labor from the production and i mean even in in the general populace very few people know how concrete is made or what concrete even is um so i think you know that's really fascinating to think about um is just this kind of process of mystification from my point of view, very intentionally over a long period of time um, to create this ideal material that nobody needs to know how it works. Concrete as the black box. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think concrete is kind of um, a sexy material to talk about, you know, because it is 
so pervasive and it's everywhere and it's surprising because you know it's mundane but then there's ways to show that it's not but i think um there's a lot of other materials that we build with and we produce with that we don't know the histories of and um i think it's important just to sort of push for the the, the cultural history of materials in general and ways materials have meaning beyond just the things that they're produced and and, and um the, the shapes they come in but so, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. To learn more about Hagley's grants and fellowships, search our collections, and listen to more stories from the stacks, visit hagley.org research. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot org.